This is a sermon about dull knives. It's a sermon about broken tools, a sermon about a cracked iPhone screen, a sermon about an untunable instrument, a sermon about tattered upholstery, a sermon about a severed limb, a sermon about atmospheric rivers, a sermon about things that seem beyond repair. It's a sermon about sinners. It's a sermon about sufferers. It's a sermon about us. And it's a sermon about these things because if we stop to consider our own lives for a moment, we could quickly identify any number of reasons why we feel broken beyond hope of repair. Why the world we live in seems broken beyond repair. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? I want you to feel the weight of that this morning. Do you feel the weight that you're too big of a sinner for there to be any hope? Feel that the wrong that's done against you is too heavy that you could never imagine feeling the peace that Kyle and Marika just read about ever again. And in order then to appreciate the light we behold at Christmas, we need to sit in this darkness, to acknowledge it for what it is. And that is what the story of David and Bathsheba will help us do this morning. The advent of Jesus is the announcement that sinners and those who have been sinned against can be forgiven and reconciled to God. The advent of Jesus is the proclamation that sinners and sufferers can be cleansed and restored. So which one are you? Are you a sinner? Or are you one who's been sinned against? I'll answer it. You are both. And so listen closely to this tragedy of David and Bathsheba and how God draws near to forgive and cleanse them and how he will, in Christmas, by his son, do the same for you. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, that's where we find the the story of David and Bathsheba. And I want to tell you the story before we unpack the story and its implication now for our lives at Christmas. So turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and you will find there one of the most scandalous stories in the Bible. And before I even tell you the story, you need to know a few things about, uh, he turns out to be the antagonist in this story, King David. You need to know that King David is the protagonist in almost every other story that's written about him. You need to know that David, uh, as a child, was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be Israel's future king. You need to know that David spent his youth as a valiant shepherd, defending his sheep against lions and bears before the days of firepower. You already surely know that David has defeated, on behalf of the cowardly Israel army, the giant Goliath. And then David, with integrity, submitted himself to wait patiently while he awaited his successor to give him the throne. And when David is crowned as king, finally, he sought hard after the Lord, led his people in countless victories, and led his people in righteousness. And you need to know that God has already, by this point, made a promise, a covenant with King David, that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
And in the spring in which this episode takes place, David's posture has changed. Instead of leading his army in battle, David has delegated his responsibilities as general of the army to his right-hand man, Joab. While David hangs around the castle and just makes sure that the TV and the AC still work, and everything appears to be working just fine. Until we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Good or bad? I think you can judge this one. It's bad. But it can be fixed. And the only way to fix this problem really is if David can get Uriah back home from battle to also go spend the night with his wife so that then nobody will find out. So in verse 6, David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Okay, we got a problem. Things just got worse. Uriah won't even go home. David tries two more times. He even gets Uriah drunk, hoping that he will just go be with his wife, but it didn't work. Yes, this is worse. But maybe it can still be fixed. And in verse 14, it says that in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Well, this is just what loyal Joab does, and Uriah dies. Okay, worse or more worse? We're supposed to start to think by this point, this car is not worth fixing. These Christmas lights are trash. We need a new set. And Joab then sends a messenger back from the battle and tells him to report the the report that he's to give to the king. If the king is displeased or astonished at this news that Uriah has died or that they are losing the battle, the messenger is to say, oh, and, and Uriah died in battle. Like, tack that on. And when the messenger comes back to the king, David doesn't even bat an eye. He sends a message back to Joab that basically says, oh, well, it happens. Keep up the good work. And just when it appears it couldn't get any worse, David appears ambivalent at best, giddy at worst, because now he can marry this woman without any trouble. The child can be born without any shame. And that is almost what happens. 
Look at verse 26 of Samuel, first Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. He did it. He fixed it. He's the cleaner you call when you need to hide the body. And if we stop reading there, we see a story of the atrocity of human sin and the abuse of power that can go unpunished and just disappear. But if we continue reading, the next words reveal that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Things are not fixed as they seem. And because this displeased the Lord, God sent one of his prophets, Nathan, to visit David. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12 now. And Nathan comes and tells David a little story. Tells a little story about a rich man who has a ton of sheep and a traveler who comes to visit the rich man. And when the rich man decides he's going to make dinner for this traveler, instead of offering one of his own sheep for the meal, he steals the lamb from a poor man. Now it happens to be the only lamb this poor man had, a pet lamb that ate at the table with the poor man's family and was considered to be one of his own daughters. And David's anger was greatly incensed toward that rich man. And he cried out at the end of this story, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan sticks his finger in David's chest and says, You are that man. And he proceeds to speak forth God's word of judgment against David, that God will raise up evil from without, within David's own house, and David's own wives will be stolen from him in broad daylight. And here's the crux of the story. Things look like they're fixed. They looked like they were going to work out just fine. When in reality, they are utterly broken, beyond repair. And just when we're ready, to throw out the broken strand of Christmas lights. The story continues. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. And sure enough, the child is born, it becomes sick, and immediately David can be found seeking the Lord, fasting, praying, prayerfully, all night, hoping that God would spare the child. And when the child, in fact, dies, David stands up, changes his clothes, and goes to the temple to worship. And everyone around him is perplexed by this immediate shift from grief to praise. And David says in verse 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And the story concludes that in verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went in and lay with her. 
and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And that's the story. What do we do with that? How does this meet us in our own darkness where we feel that we ourselves are broken beyond repair and it would be better just to throw us out and start over? It meets us head on because the story confronts us with the reality that at the advent of Jesus, the announcement is made that sinners and those who are sinned against can be forgiven, cleansed, and restored. And we have a little bit more work to do for the incredulity of that really to kind of sink in. And the first thing we need to to work at is our understanding that these sinners find in God a Savior. In this story, okay, that we've just rehearsed, we have a potent example of the man that our society abhors. A man with power who uses that power to overpower, to assault those who are powerless. And in our context, those men make headlines for a week and then we cancel them. David appears likewise broken beyond repair. What hope is there for him? Now we are not unlike David, however in that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is any attitude, affection, or action in rebellion against God. And the fact is that sin isolates humans from God. You were meant, we were meant to live with Him. But because of sin, we live instead against Him. And for some, the nature of that sin is public with the cascading consequences on others. For others, the sin is private and covered up. And really, what we want to do this morning is we want to see how God will deal with David before we climb out of the bushes covered in our own filth. Now, we are on pins and needles here. And our concept of sin really is admittedly more formed by the culture that we live in than by the God we serve. We deem uh, some sins safe. Some are deadly. Some sins are pardonable. Some are unforgivable. And so we judge generally the severity of the sin based on the presence of collateral damage. You steal an apple when no one's looking. It's not a big deal. Right? You kill the president on national news, big deal, right? And we're right to judge those two things differently in our human law enforcement. But the problem with sin is precisely that deception that we think God will see things the same way. But all sin is by its definition in offense against God. We've already even heard about Him today. The all-perfect, all-beautiful, all-powerful Creator. And He does not use that scale in His judgment. The wages of sin, He says, is death. And that is the first deception in the garden. When Satan says to Adam and Eve, Eat, 
you will not surely die. It will all work out for you. And that lie resounds now through human history and every one of us lives in ignorant bliss on death row while awaiting the just judgment of our sin simply and precisely because of whom we have sinned against. All of us, therefore, are like David then, without hope. We're all broken strands of Christmas lights that would be better discarded than repaired. And so we do with our sin what our parents, Adam and Eve, did in the garden. We hide. Peace with God and peace with man is uprooted by sin. And in its place grows guilt and fear and shame. And we try to hide. We try like David to hide our sin. And when we can't hide from our sin, we hide from God. And so before we come out of our hiding, we need to see how God will treat David. And I see in this story three actions that outline how God will treat the sinner. How God treated David and how God will then treat all sinners like him. The first action is that God moves Toward the sinner. Now this might have been overlooked in our initial reading of the story. But chapter 11 closes with these words. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And chapter 12 opens with these words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that first movement, this first action is significant. You can only conclude, really, from the reading of the story of David and Bathsheba, that David had no intention whatsoever of ever approaching God again. That with every line, he moves further and further away from God, and you would be right to expect that God would be so frustrated that David is not living into who God has made him and called him to be, that God would just scrap the brat and start over. But you would be wrong. In a miracle of mercy, God does not treat David as David deserves. He makes the first move, and the first move is not away from David, but is toward him. And friends, God makes the same first move toward you when you sin as well. And you might feel that you're too far gone. You might feel that you've even covered your tracks pretty well. You might feel that, like you could start to get comfortable hiding in the bushes. And that God might just forget you. But that is not what you want. And that is not what you need. That will only be the certain death of you. You were made to live with God, not against Him. And you cannot live with God while you are hiding from Him. So this first movement of God is an invitational move. When He comes, He's not tolerant. He's not okay with things. He's not ambivalent. But instead, His warning is a gift in itself. And He comes inviting David to then take the next action in response. And here's the second action. The sinner moves toward God in confession. 
So God has moved toward the sinner. Now he invites the sinner to move toward him in confession. After Nathan's story, um, you notice David's response in chapter 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. And those words are emphasized in one of the Psalms, which David wrote as his song of confession, Psalm 51, where he emphasizes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this is the response that God's movement toward the sinner is designed to elicit. Now to confess sin, is to simply agree with God about it. To no longer minimize it, to no longer ignore it, to no longer shift the blame, but rather agree with Him, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, it seems like in this confession, David just overlooks or minimizes the horizontal implications of his offense. But I cannot believe that is the case. And here's why. All sin is primarily sin against God. There are no sins against others which are not also at the same moment sins against God. And regardless of how David goes about making things right, horizontally, unless this vertical relationship is restored, he will be forever guilty. Forgiveness is not something you can delegate. Only the one sinned against can forgive. Suppose with me that Matt offended Kyle. Gasp. He sins against Kyle. Now, I cannot forgive Matt. On Kyle's behalf. Only Kyle can forgive Matt. And so what David, when he is confessing, he's in no means minimizing this horizontal aspect of sin. He is admitting that unless God forgives him by this second miracle of mercy, that he will go to his grave in his guilt. And by confessing then, he makes his first movement toward God in response to God's first movement toward him. And now we wait to see what God will do. We don't wait very long. Here's the third action. God embraces the sinner. Immediately after David's confession, as though it was already on his tongue, Nathan declares in the same verse, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God's charges against David are dropped. His frown turns into a smile. What? How is this possible? It's, it is not just if God simply starts to smile at adulterous murderers. You remember, uh, probably from elementary school, the fundamental principle of microeconomics. And it is this, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Someone has to buy it, right? And we cannot simply let sinners go free without consequence. If the wages of sin is death, then in order to be just, someone has to die. And that is what has happened, or rather what will happen. Because at Christmas, God moved by love, 
writes himself into the story as the God-man Jesus, that he might take the sinner's place on death row and absorb the death blow of God's judgment against sin so that sinners like David and sinners like you and me could go free. Thus, in the death of Jesus, God's justice is upheld and moreover His grace to us Romans 3 makes it clear that the means by which God forgave sinners before Jesus died, like David, is the same means by which he forgives sinners after Jesus died, like you and me. In David's case, he looked forward, anticipating that his wrath against sin would be poured out in its entirety upon Jesus in his death on the cross. And for us, he looks back at the same death of his same son as the satisfaction for pardoning sinners. We too then will receive forgiveness from God just as God provided for David. And the cross is our assurance of his smile. It carries the promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's heart is for you from beginning to end, sinner. He moves towards you. He invites you back into His presence where you will find relief from your guilt, fear, and shame. Peace, shalom, as we read this morning, is made possible only because God has done for you everything that you were unwilling and unable to do on your own. And the good news of the gospel is this. Unless you belittle your condition, you are simultaneously worse than you could dare to imagine. And more loved than you could dare to dream. Now that is true of David, and God promises that is true of you also. You are not trash to be discarded, even though your sin makes you feel worthless. God has moved towards you, intent on restoring you, if you will move toward Him. But, that's only half the story, right? David's sin might be forgiven, but what about, what about Bathsheba? and the sin committed against her. And if we're honest, this is where we've got a big problem with forgiveness. Because what if we are the one who's been sinned against? You see, just as the sinner needed a Savior, so those who are sinned against also need a Savior. Because sin produced in us guilt, fear, and shame, and the sin committed against us predominantly produces shame. And when, when sin is committed against us, we feel it. We feel dirty, unlovable, unworthy, like we could never show our face in public again. Sin committed against us also separates us from God. In particular, it defiles us, making us unclean and ashamed that God would see us as we really are. For many, being sinned against produces that same impulse to hide. And we want to see here how God will treat Bathsheba before we ourselves crawl out of hiding. Now, here's the hard part. 
we admittedly have a lot less material to build on as we consider Bathsheba's experience in the story. But my question is this. In her shame and in her sorrow, what does Bathsheba need God to do for her? Let that thought be uh, just kind of undergird our discussion now as we try to understand her side of the story. Here's what we know about her, okay? She married Uriah the Hittite, meaning that she was not a Uriah the Israelite, Uriah the Hittite. She was outside of the covenant people of God. However, when she was on the roof, she was ritually cleansing herself of her monthly impurity as God had prescribed through the law of Moses. So she's on the roof, not flaunting her body, but practicing her faith. And she was beautiful in David's eye. And that is all we know about Bathsheba. And when the king sends for her, what are her options? To refuse him is a death sentence. So she really has no choice. Overpowered then, she becomes pregnant. And the next thing she knows, her husband is mysteriously killed in battle. Her child gets sick and dies, and the tragedy goes from bad to worse to worse to worse. A story of unthinkable shame and sorrow and suffering. The silence in the story, however, is deafening. There is nowhere any indication of Bathsheba's guilt. Yet, unfortunately, it may take very little imagination for you to imagine how small she feels feeling herself broken beyond repair, unworthy of anyone's attention, let alone God's. What does Bathsheba then need God to do for her? What is, who does she need God to be? Now in this instance, now I've already said that all are sinners, but in this moment, she doesn't need to be forgiven. She doesn't have guilt to be forgiven. Instead, she needs God to cleanse her. She needs God to not throw her away. She needs God to remember her and make something beautiful out of her. She needs Him to restore her. Now, there is a lot to say to sufferers like Bathsheba that is not included in our text this morning. God is near. He has not abandoned you. God will comfort. He is the only one who truly can sympathize with you. God will defend you. His justice is certain. But there is one thing that does happen in this story that God does do for Bathsheba that rises to the surface. He restores her. And I want to make sure you see this clearly. Bathsheba is outside the promise looking in at this glimmering promise of God. And prior to this calamitous story, she has no share in the promise of that eternal righteous king who would come. But through what transpires, she is brought into David's house. And David is the direct recipient of God's promise to send the eternal righteous king. And now then, in spite of her shame and her sorrow, she is included. But more than just being included, the restoration is amplified. Bathsheba then has a second son and names him Solomon. And it says, the Lord loved him. And this son was called Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. 
But more than that, the restoration is amplified again when you turn the page into the New Testament because more than just a son who was loved by God, Bathsheba becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of God's own beloved son. And the first words in the New Testament are a genealogy of Jesus, which include the punctuation on her restoration. It says in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And her name is not listed. Now, why might that be? Wife of Uriah, that title was inexplicably forever linked with shame and sorrow of what took place while she was the wife of Uriah. By including that title for her, there is this moment that signifies that a great reversal has taken place. No longer is the wife of Uriah a title of shame and sorrow, but rather now it is an exalted and honorable title through the birth of her direct descendant, the eternal king, Jesus. Well, weird Advent sermon, yeah? <laughs> but we did it, and we, got, we found our way through the line of now Bathsheba, even now, to Jesus. And the one thing that both David and Bathsheba have in common in this story is their need for the arrival of Jesus. David's forgiveness depends on the arrival of one who would die in his place, that he might be forgiven. Bathsheba's honor depends on a vindication by a son that is exalted in a line where her title is restored. Now, perhaps you can easily identify yourself in this story. Perhaps you recognize the David in your own heart or the Bathsheba in your own heart. We have sinned and we have been sinned against. And it's likely that one or both of those realities is eating you up inside. The psalm we read this morning even, written by David, his bones are wasting away. And you need the advent of Jesus. You need him to step into the scene. You need the author to stop writing the story out there in third person, but to enter in. You need a God who will not throw you away when you're trash or when one of your bulbs is burnt. But who would instead fix you and restore you. So would you come to him this morning? Come to him in faith. He has moved towards you. Would you now move toward him? Knowing that he is ready to forgive, to cleanse, and to restore you. Would you join me as we pray and turn our attention to sing of Jesus? Lord, we have, uh, we have sung the words, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it's a nice song. But Lord, as we contemplate the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness in the world around us, 
we find that really the only thing that will save us, the only thing that will restore light to our eyes is if Emmanuel, God, would come to dwell with us. So Jesus, um, wherever we stand, wherever we sit, wherever we identify ourselves today as either sinners or ones who have been sinned against, all of our hope is in you. And so would you show up? Would you take the first move and would you embrace us and restore us again in your name we pray. Amen.